0: Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence.
1: Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome
0: back to the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks again for being a part of the conversation. Thank you for, you know, not just downloading this. You know, we often say thanks for your download. But uh, I just want to thank you for listening. Thank you for engaging. Thank you for really putting what you're learning uh, through this podcast into practice. I mean, that's something that always gets me excited to know the impact that this podcast is making. I'm Phil Dark, your host, and with me is Brandon Stiver, my brother, uh, my friend,
1: my co-host. So, Brandon, how you doing? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing really good. I'm, I'm excited for this interview today. I, I, I feel like we're starting to get some guests on here that m- maybe people haven't heard of, but man, they just bring the fire. I, I definitely think in a a couple episodes ago with uh, Sarah Winograd and and man, I'm just excited for this interview. Excited for our our listeners to to dive in. Yeah, definitely. How yeah, you been so, man? You were just traveling or something, right?
0: Yeah, I was. I was. It was good. It was a really good, I did this, uh, it's called Experiential Team Adventure and it was with the Global Sports Movement. It's really leadership training but we did some wilderness stuff. We did a, they dropped us off, took our phones, took our watches. I don't want to get into too much in case some people on here do it because I do want to do it with some of the, some of the orphan care folks. Um, but just a ton of leadership lessons that, that happen. Is, as they said, you know, you hear me saying the best things in life happen just on the other side of comfortable. And I've said that a lot. But one of the things they added to that that I loved was, if you. but the problem with that is if you stretch too much, then people don't learn anything because they just tap out. Yeah. So it's stretching just the other side of comfortable. And so that was something that I think we did. Um and I was able to do it with my son, which was awesome. Um, with my twenty year old, and um, yeah. So it's That's it's awesome. just it's it was a really really great week. Um, we were just north of actually we we're just outside of College Station. So shout out oh, to Jason okay. Johnson there. Um, but uh, I waved I waved hello as we drove through, and I saw Texas A and M. So anyway, yeah. So that was really cool. But uh, you know, and I I'm I I was bummed because I had to miss the actual interview for this, um, you know, I, today and, and, um, but, uh, but I know I, as, as I listen to this interview, I'm so excited, um, to get this out there. I'm excited to talk about it. Um, and I, you know, I, these are topics that we need to go deeper into, not just stay on the surface and we have to engage these issues and we're going to get to what that issue is here in a minute. But um, as you'll hear, there's a narrative that's winning out there that is not consistent with scripture. And um, it's something that, that is really, really important for us to engage. And, um, and, and, I, and I would say fight, you know, because we, we need to. We need to um, fight for justice, fight for what's right and justice being um, what is right. And uh, making all things new. So, anyway, that's something that I'm I'm psyched on. So, tell us about it. What, what do we got coming? Uh, what do we got? You know,
1: we've we've teased it enough, right? You know, yeah, what's yeah, going yeah. on? What's coming? What's coming the the way of the the listener right now? Well, we've got Elizabeth Kirk uh, on the show today. She is with uh, the Catholic Universities of America. She is a, a attorney. She is. Uh, wait, wait, I have to ask you: is is attorney and lawyer really interchangeable? That's your background. Yeah. Okay, all right. it, It's the same. I, I, think in England,
0: I think the reason, there's probably somebody that will say, oh, no, they're not. But in, in England, you know, they have the barrister and the solicitor, and there, there's some distinctions oh. there. But here, you can
1: pretty much use attorney and lawyer. Because I started to say she's a lawyer and a professor, which is true. But I mm-hmm. said attorney, and I said, oh, want to make sure that's right. So That's okay. Thanks. It's okay. Say a little quality control there. Thank you, uh, Mr. Dark. So, uh, Elizabeth is a lawyer and a professor, and she's really going to walk us through what what infant adoption looks like. Now, you've heard us on the podcast talk quite a bit about you know engaging in foster care, uh, how to keep help kids uh, stay with their families, reunify with their families. How did you uh, you know go about adoption when that's in the kids' best interest? And often we are talking about those kids that are been left outside of family or gone through traumatic experiences. What we're diving in with uh, with Elizabeth is. Is really looking at you know what does this, what does this look like for the unborn right and especially as we have had the Dobbs decision that uh, that came through a handful of months ago during the summer so uh, I'm just uh, I was blown away by her her intellect and her story and I'm just really excited uh, for our listeners to get into this episode uh, with Elizabeth Kirk. Well, Elizabeth Kirk, uh, it is a pleasure to have you on Thingorf and thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Can you maybe just uh, you know, I really enjoyed as I was doing the prep for this, getting into some of the online materials and lectures and conversations that you've been a part of. Uh, but maybe some of our audience haven't are, aren't familiar with you and your work. Can you just uh, briefly introduce yourself to our audience and share about the work that you've done in adoption research and and other?
2: Sure. Um, so uh, I currently, you know, my background is law. I teach at the Catholic University of America, Columbus School of Law, where I also direct a center called the Center for Law and the Human Person. Uh, and so my work in general is, is really um, very broad in the sense that I research an area of the, the dignity of the human person, uh, but especially in light of contemporary challenges that the family faces. So I teach family law uh, to students, uh, but my my own work, um, you know, is is kind of broad. You know, in the area of child welfare, parental rights, uh, and adoption law and policy. Uh, so with respect to adoption specifically, um, as you noted, I've I've given talks and um, uh, helped advise legislators on pro adoption legislation. Uh, I also last fall hosted a symposium at Catholic University of America where I invited um, a host of of people who are active in the adoption space, like Ryan Hanlon from from the National Council for Adoption and Jed Medifin from Christian Alliance for Orphans to have a public conversation about the role of adoption in a post-Dobbs landscape. Uh, So I just try to keep you know, connecting with others who are interested in promoting adoption and also thinking and researching in my own work about um, how to how to think more uh, coherently and positively about adoption.
1: Yeah, well, everything that I've heard from you has really been uh, just very compelling and very thoughtful, you know, because these are sticky issues. And, and uh, we're talking about family vulnerability. We're talking about kids that are potentially at risk and um so I just appreciate your thought leadership in that and you mentioned Jed who we've had on the show a couple times who's a, who's a friend of the uh, of ours and just just love your approach with this but I mean what really drew you into this area of research and and advocating for policy around around adoption
2: So for me it's a heart and mind thing um I think like many of us drawn to working with vulnerable children we have our own personal connection to you know to what drew us to that um, in my in my personal uh, life, I was the child of a crisis pregnancy. Uh, my mom got pregnant with me unexpectedly in college. Um, she chose life for me uh, without the support of my biological father, and she met and married my dad. What you know, my now father, when I was uh, three, and so his gift of fatherhood—he adopted me when he married my mom. His gift of fatherhood really shaped. My understanding from a very young age of of what it means to be a parent, right that it that it transcends in some important sense, even for biological parents, right? It transcends biology, right? It's it's a it's a gift um, in some profound way and a vocation. Um, so, also, uh, my husband and I have welcomed our four children into our family through adoption. So, our first three uh, we adopted uh, through private placements when they were born and have different. Levels of openness with their birth families. And then our last little guy, um, I keep calling him my little guy, but he's almost eight now. Um, we adopted from foster care. Uh, so we have a kind of broad experience personally um, in adoption. And then just, you know, my background is law, and I was always drawn in general to issues uh, relating to the family. It's always been an intersection for me of my professional work and my faith. Uh, and so just as it developed and especially given my personal connection it just made sense that i was able to devote some of my professional skills to an area that touched my heart so much
1: yeah no that's really beautiful and and you know adoption is such a beautiful uh expression of of how we can live out our faith and and uh, welcome kids in that 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 definitely need a home um you know and it, on think orphan we talk about You know, child welfare quite broadly. I mean, not too long ago, we had somebody that was really um, helping us kind of think through the child welfare system in general and the lack of preservation uh, of of vulnerable families. And we we kind of you know try to turn over as many stones as we can. You know, one of the one of the things that you have focused on is even around infant adoption. So to kind of. frame this. At one point in my career, I was working at a foster family agency and we were going out and recruiting and training foster parents. Um, And when they said, oh, we really want to adopt a baby, we would basically just refer them elsewhere because we were always trying to train and recruit uh, foster parents and adoptive parents. So, you know, potentially if, if, if adoption's the best course of action for kids that are in the foster care system. But really preparing them for um, to to welcome an older child or to welcome a sibling set or to welcome a kid with special needs. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really a waiting list for, uh, I mean, um, there is more of a waiting list, I should say, for adoptable infants. Whereas, you know, often you see the biggest need with some of these other kids. So why why has infant adoption, you know, been one of the areas that you've really either advocated for or, or provided research on or some thought leadership in?
2: It's a really good question. And I think it's something oftentimes, um, those of us in the pro-life space here, you know, like, well, there's, there's children waiting. Why don't you just, you know, adopt them? What's, what's the, um, fo- why the focus on infants? And, you know, I mean, I think I would say, you know, I, I think our call to, um, protect the orphan, <laughs> right. Um, is, is Universal in the sense that we don't just select one group of vulnerable children that we're going to work on behalf of and I, And so my work on infant adoption is not meant to be at the expense of the very pressing problems in foster care um, But I also view the orphan as the child languishing in foster care and The infant vulnerable to abortion and I think for both of those categories of vulnerable children adoption can play a meaningful role um in, in you know addressing the underlying problem and so uh, I don't view it as an either or uh, I, but I do in my in my work uh, in family law think that that speaking out about the role of adoption vis-a-vis abortion is less represented uh, than those who are advocating for reform and service in the foster care space so that probably accounts for my emphasis but I I think both are are absolutely important
1: no, that's really well said, and and absolutely. There's there's no dichotomy here. All of these kids, whether they're in utero or already out here with us, um, they definitely need family, and, and for for some of them, you know, adoption is the best opportunity. And I'm actually going to uh, press into that a little bit more later in the interview, but I did kind of want to um, get around the Dobbs decision. So you know, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, um, I you know, it, it's interesting because we actually talked with Jed back in the summer. Um, and by happenstance that episode released um, like literally like the week after the Dobbs decision which helped our download rate so thank you for everybody there Um, but uh, as we are several months in now what's kind of what are you seeing even as you kind of look at as this has gone to the state level uh, you know with laws and what are the implications for kids that are being born that may have otherwise not been born I mean Do you have any kind of read on that or or what you're seeing states do with it now that it's been uh, several months?
2: Yeah, I think it's probably too early to say with any kind of, you know, certainty in terms of effect on numbers. Um, Certainly, you know, I've seen reports that in certain states like Texas that, you know, the number of abortions are down, the number of births are up. Um, You know, however, I think we can't discount the role that interstate travel um, the new uh, availability of chemical abortion pills through the mail you know, will play. So I do think it's going to be some time before we know the impact of Dobbs, which, of course, only didn't outlaw abortion. Right. You know, for, for those of you, those of the listeners who might not fully understand the implications of the Supreme Court decision, it simply referred the matter of abortion back to the legislative process. And so, you know, abortion is still protected you know, robustly in many parts of the country and will continue to be accessible. So I think it's too early to say about the numbers. In terms of the role of adoption, I think it's probably also um, too early to say. I mean, one thing that I observed as someone who's interested in these questions is the way in which um, many uh, pro-choice, especially scholars and, and advocates, spoke out against adoption in a kind of dramatic way in the months following the Dobbs decision. I don't know if that's something you noticed as well, Um, but just sort of emphasizing that adoption doesn't solve the problem for women, right? That women who um, face unexpected pregnancies, um, you know, abortion is the best solution, uh, that adoption still requires her to continue her pregnancy, right? Um, the dissent in Dobbs actually called that experience of continuing an unwanted pregnancy as a kind of coercion right that pregnancy itself is a coercive exploitive experience so with, for those with those views they don't see adoption as playing any role in in the equation um And I think you know what what I'm interested in exploring and and so I, I think, I don't know what effect the ops will have, but I think it is the occasion for us to be talking about this underlying dynamic, which is, you know, is abortion a good solution um, or might adoption play a greater role? You know, especially, of course, in those states where abortion will be more restricted, but just in general, I think it's it's a good occasion to be thinking about whether adoption might play um, a meaningful role.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And and no, I had not come across that myself, that uh, viewing Carrying the pregnancy to term and then delivering would be in some way seen as oppressive. Um, I'm I'm just wondering if is that linked to kind of some of uh, some ideologies that might undermine the the differences in gender, or is that just kind of like I'm just really curious because it is a profoundly human experience that is obviously you know specific to women. but viewing that from an oppressive lens i'm just kind of curious where where does that where does that come from
2: that's a great question i mean i think you probably put your finger on one strand right of of thinking that informs the view of pregnancy as an oppressive like as inherently coercive right so that unless it's completely freely chosen um at each moment right that it's it's an oppressive experience um i think you know, it, it there are, are likely to uh, other strands at play, um, but I I think one thing I would say is that um, the the majority's view in Roe that was affirmed in Casey, and then the dissent, you know, wanted to to affirm, you know, in Dobbs that that is is that. Um, Pregnancy is something that, of course, is uniquely experienced by the woman, and therefore, she alone has to make the decision. And I think a kind of perhaps unwitting consequence of that, that maybe the original deciders in Roe didn't even intend, is that it placed the entire burden on women. Of course, pregnancy does disproportionately affect women, but it sort of wrote out of the equation fathers, right, Um, but also the community, and I think a different view of pregnancy, even in the context of a difficult or unexpected pregnancy, um, is to see that the woman is already a mother, right? Um, and then it's our role not to abandon her to some kind of isolated autonomy, which is the way Roe looks at it, um, but rather to step in, right? And to wrap around her, um, whether it be the father, ideally, but also all of us. Uh, to recognize the reality of her motherhood and help her carry that in whatever way is best for her and her child. You know, I want to say adoption is one way, but obviously parenting is the preferred way. Uh, And so it's just, I think, two completely different understandings of the human person. Are we completely autonomous, you know, individuals, or are we embodied, dependent persons in community with one another? And I think that's kind of, uh, those two views of the human person underlie these two views of uh, pregnancy.
1: This episode of Think Orphan is brought to you by the Global Development and Justice Master's Program at Multnomah University in Portland, Oregon. This is the graduate program that prepares students to work across the nexus of justice, community development, and peace-building work. The Global Development and Justice degree prepares students to work in the US or around the world And what I appreciate most about this degree program is how it integrates faith into real global development practice and even incorporates an intentional focus on children living in at-risk environments. You've heard Dr. Greg Birch here on the podcast informing our approaches with Street Connected Youth. Well, he, along with the other faculty at Multinoma, think and act locally and globally recognizing that both theory and practice must be sensitive to whatever context their students are working in. Graduates from Magda J go on to work at leading global nonprofits like World Vision, Loom International, World Relief, and yes, even One Million Home. The Masters in Global Development and Justice can be taken either online or on campus, and they're currently accepting applications for fall 2023. Visit multinoma.edu front that's multinoma.edu front slash M-A-G-D-J or click the link in our show notes to learn more and apply. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate the way that you frame that, Elizabeth. And, you know, we have listeners in lots of other countries as well. Um, that, And so a lot of these countries, especially when they are more collectivistic, um, have a larger view of family and kin these areas are typically more pro-life um than certainly what we find here uh in in the west um so I, i actually really appreciate that because it is it's it's not just receiving the child to the mother which is first attachment beautiful connection and all of that but it is it's it's receiving the child into a larger family and a larger community and and perhaps if we were more proactive to really view it in those terms then these decisions to choose life would be easier for for women, you know that, that maybe are uh, having an unplanned pregnancy, um, and you know even as we're talking, of course, you know listeners may have their own uh, experiences uh, how how either abortion or adoption have touched their lives, and um, we just want to acknowledge that these are very hard and sensitive things, and and um, you know whatever our listeners' background may be. Um, we're just glad that you're tuning in as we do think about, about how can we help kids, uh, make their way into safe and healthy and loving families. Um, you know, something that you were getting towards there, Elizabeth, uh, was, was really compelling to me and something that I was hearing you on, uh, in one of those conversations was about this res- research that you've done in the decision-making processes for women. Um, so, you know, when a woman is pregnant perhaps an unplanned pregnancy, um, there are choices, there are decisions that she can make and, and, you know, there may be choices in abortion or raising their children or placing them for adoption. Can you just tell us a little bit about the research that you've done in the decision making processes for women?
2: Sure. Well, um I guess first, just to emphasize, I myself am not a social scientist, so so much of my work has been to to kind of summarize and and think about the implications in law and policy for for um, based on work that others have done in this space. And so I think in order to think about how we can craft laws or policies that will promote adoption, we need to better understand the decision making process of women who are thinking about the choice, right? And so uh, in those, the, uh, first I'll say there's, there's not much research on it. And so there's certainly a call uh, to support more research on women's decision making. But I think a couple of things, factors that we see um, in explaining why it is that adoption is not a meaningful option for women. So just to kind of throw out a statistic, by a ratio of 50 to 1, women who, do, who for whatever reason, choose not to parent right? So parenting is off the table by a ratio of 50 to one, they choose abortion. So that is for every one infant placed for adoption, um, 50 are aborted. Why is that? Why? I mean, that's statistically really a non-option, right? And so there's a few things I think at place. One is despite the fact that there's this very positive general cultural view of adoption, people you know by and large report that they think adoption is a noble institution that it does good for children et cetera. um there is a kind of stigma against the choice of it um so both people like me you know people don't welcome children into their family through adoption infertile couples um usually go a kind of ibf or other assisted reproductive technology route first before thinking about welcoming a non-related child through adoption and then of course women don't place their own children so there's this bias. Um, I Just a quick anecdote in, a, in one of the studies I read had to do with a young woman who was herself in a foster care maternity home. So she was a minor, but it was a home for pregnant teens. And the study followed the decision making of all of the teens. And this young woman uh, made an adoption plan, but lied to her housemates about her intentions. And then when she went to the hospital to deliver and continued with her adoption plan, and went back to the maternity home, she told her housemates that she had had the child removed from DCF for suspected abuse, because that was a more palatable narrative than to admit she had placed her child for adoption. So I think there's this narrative of abandonment, that placing a child for adoption is unnatural, um, that it's abandoning your child, that it's not what a good mother does. It's paradoxical to those of us in the pro-life space to think that then you would instead choose abortion, right? But that's the reality, I think, of, of women's um, decision-making. I think there, I mean, I could go on and on. I mean, there's many other factors. I think I'll just mention two others very quickly, which have to do with the la- both ha- have to do with a lack of education in this space. So one is that women conflate placing their child for adoption with the foster care system. So they say, I don't want my child in the system, right? Not realizing that the system is for children who have been r- removed for abuse and neglect. And what they would be doing is an independent private process where they have agency and choose the birth fa- or the adoptive family and all of that. That's one confusion. And then I think there's also a, co- uh, a confusion uh, with outdated adoption practices. In other words, 40 plus years ago, women who are kind of you know, whisked away. Their their child was taken from them. They didn't see it at birth. They had no idea where it was placed. Adoption records were sealed. They were anonymous. Um, there was secrecy and shame, kind of shrouding the whole process. That is lamentable, uh, but it doesn't describe contemporary adoption practices, in which again, the woman has a great deal of agency to choose the adoptive family, to to determine the level of openness. Uh, you know, to have shared and inf- freely shared information about medical history, but also about interests and, and, you know, and even to have visits if that's something mutually agreed upon. So I, I would say those are some of the chief factors that cause women not to consider adoption as a meaningful option.
1: Yeah, that's helpful. You know, we find so so at One Million Home, the organization I work for. We we work a lot in the global south, and specifically getting kids that have been wrongfully institutionalized, placed in residential care, back home with their families. So most of the time, this looks like reunification. Uh, in certain instances, uh, finding permanency through adoption or long term foster care may be more appropriate. But that's what we do. What what we come across are a lot of misperceptions uh, concerning why what is an orphan why why is why are kids in orphanages orphanage orphanages are good you know and 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 those types of conversations and we can point to cultural uh things that uh, cultural narratives and so forth that kind of perpetuate our view of what an orphan is or how um you know orphanages are just always benevolent and and never a bad solution for kids or or what have you there's kind of all of these you know stories that we hear that kind of uphold those misconceptions really so from the misconceptions that you were just describing you know such as you know i don't want my kid to go into the system so like for for like i have two nephews who are both um adopted through private adoption and having worked in the foster care system it's 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 quite strikingly different from from actually like being an insider and actually viewing the differences between those two types of placements, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what do you think are some of the reasons that that what are the cultural narratives or what are the what are the things that are actually perpetuating those wrong conclusions? Is there anything that that you can kind of put your finger on?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a few things. I mean, I think one is simply just a lack of education, right? I mean, it, and and there are are efforts uh, to push back at this. For example, um, a program I'm, I'm really f- fond of and I hope eventually will, will be represented throughout the country is something called Option Hope in Louisiana, um, where as part of the um, you know health education for middle schoolers and high schoolers that's required by the state, um, they require there to be a module about adoption. And so um, some folks down in Louisiana have developed this really beautiful curriculum called Option Hope, Uh, which teaches young people about accurate information about what the institution of adoption involves. And I think, you know, that really helps. That's the sort of thing that helps move the needle in the the culture uh, because it's not trying to insert yourself into the crisis moment, which is often too late, but rather to create a culture in which adoption is spoken about and discussed um, in a positive way so that when there is a crisis, right that you're, you're making a decision against an informed background. So I think one is simply just a general lack of education. Also, I do think that there is this anti-adoption movement and many of the voices in that movement are women who have been were harmed by what we call the baby scoop era, the, you know the era bef- especially before the 70s um, in which women, uh, you know, did experience. Harmful um, coercive practices and didn't have agency and and therefore don't feel good about their decision to place their child. I think again, the very little data we have does show some discrepancies in satisfaction between you know those eras of placement and and so I think those voices, while understandable, are unfortunately you know contributing to this misunderstanding that that because it doesn't currently reflect our practices. We can always do more and we should make sure that our adoption practices are ethical and respect the dignity of a birth mom. Um, It's something I say a lot in pro-life audiences is that we can never objectify, you know, the birth mother as a means to a child, right? That her dignity as a mother always must be honored and prioritized and including if she decides to change her mind and parent right that needs to be first and foremost um but i do think we have to be careful not to conflate this old well, outdated way of adoption practices with what's currently being practiced
1: right and and i really appreciate what you say there about the mother the birth mother's dignity and i i don't I don't think that we can be properly pro-life if we're not also pro-her life, you know, and valuing who she is and valuing the important role that she plays to the child, to her child. Um, And so I just really appreciate that. You know, one of the things you talk about there is the woman's agency. So, um, you know, many of these women, um, you know, are potentially in vulnerable situations, which has, you know, led them to, this kind of crux where they have to make a decision. How do you encourage a vulnerable women's agency and while at the same time providing support uh, that's, you know, promoting a pro-life solution? You know, what does, what does that look like? How do you kind of balance that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, taking a step back from the experience of a crisis pregnancy, I think any suffering that we experience Um, we are more likely to be um, well, and let me just preface this by saying I'm a lawyer, not a counselor, right. Or a pastoral advice. So, I mean, take my advice with a grain of salt here. Um, But I think any suffering or or challenge that we face, um, we are more likely to, uh, you know, experience healing and wholeness through it. If we, recognize a couple of things. One is this thing I mentioned earlier about our nature as human beings that we need one another, right? So if we lean into others supporting us and walking with us through that experience, um, you know, and, and the other, I think, um, is, you know, is, is simply to the extent that we exercise agency, right. And we're, we don't see ourselves as a pure victim right although we may sometimes be a victim of, of something that was done to us against our will but if we despite that harm done to us are able to exercise our agency in some way we are we see ourselves as as you know um making good of it right um and so i think applied to the context of a crisis pregnancy i think whatever the circumstances are that led to the to the situation i think uh if anything we can do to both wrap around the woman who's experiencing that and to allow her to see, um, the good that she can accomplish through her own decision-making is bound to be what leads to the healthiest, wholest resolution for her as a person. And then hopefully for her baby as well.
1: Yeah. And, and as you're doing, you know, getting into the research on this, you had shared a story that, um, that that might be indicative of this uh, from your own life, and when you when you had adopted uh, one of your children, and a nurse that had called you over to the to the station to kind of share. Can you share that story? But then also kind of go from there to maybe even share other reflections of uh, birth mothers uh, that chose that chose to place their child for adoption, and their reflection later on was yes, that was the right decision. Can you can you share a little bit of your personal story and if that relates to other things you see?
2: I love that story. And I I wrote about it um, in one essay Uh, when we were adopting our first child. My husband and I were in the hospital and we were um, uh, we had just stepped out of the hospital room to allow the birth family to spend a little time with our um, infant son before we ourselves were going to leave. And we were just kind of filled with so many different emotions, including sorrow, because we knew how difficult that goodbye was for the family. I mean, we had gotten to know them over the months preceding his birth, and we really loved them. And uh, and and so we were, but we were also, of course, so excited to be bringing him home. And, and so we had all these kind of jumble of emotions. And the woman who was sitting at the nurse's station called us over, and She said, "Are you the adoptive parents of baby boy in the room such and such?" And we said yes, and we thought she had some paperwork or something for us to do. And she said, "Well, I, I've been wanting to tell you that I'm a birth mother." And she's and she looked like she was in her sixties or something. And and we said, "Oh," and she said, "Yeah, I just." And she told us the story of how she had been pregnant as a young woman, wasn't ready to be a mother, wasn't married, um, and had placed her son for adoption. And later, married and had a family, but had reconnected with her her son and he was doing well and she had had a, you know, um, a good marriage and and she just, she was glowing. I mean, she was really, her face was glowing and beaming. And, you know, my husband and I have always viewed that, as exper- that experience as a kind of providential gift to us at, at that very moment that we were worried about our son's birth mom. We were being given a glimpse of The healing that might be possible in her life someday, you know, and that's our prayer. You know, we, of course, would never diminish the sacrifice and how difficult it is. But the reality is that many women, for a variety of different reasons, are not able in the moment to parent and to make this kind of self-sacrificial choice has this capacity for healing, I think, is really, um, you know, is very beautiful uh, for us to witness. And I think it's part of the beauty of adoption. Um, You know, another story from my own personal experience, I'm sure there are stories that abound about women who report that it was healing for them. But just one other quick anecdote is um, one of our birth mothers uh, told us that she, that it was her experience of my husband and I's marriage, that was especially healing for her. And that gave her hope that someday she would meet her Bill. My husband's name is Bill. Um, and and so uh, again, I mean, I, I'm not saying we're, you know, these amazing role models of marriage, but I think it's really beautiful that our shared love of this child um, was something that was able to see, help her to see her dignity. Right, and the kind of relationship she should expect and hold out for, right? Um, that's a, another w- really beautiful healing capacity that I think adoption has.
1: No, I love that. I, I really do, and, and thank you so much for sharing those stories. You know, as you were as you were talking, I, I couldn't help but have a reflection on our own adoption story. We we adopted while we were uh, long term residents in in Tanzania in East Africa. We did a domestic adoption of a boy who had been in a children's home and uh, having gone through that process which is can be a little harrowing and stressful and and all of that when you're the adoptive parents um i just have this very distinct uh memory of uh interacting with his grandmother he he my my son had lost both of his uh birth parents or you know um but uh interacting with his grandmother and we're speaking swahili and she was just such a sweet woman she recently passed on but um, I just have this very distinct memory of her talking about how God was lifting up her burdens and she was referring to now she doesn't have to worry, you know, about what might come of her grandson mm. uh, because he had made his way into our family. And um, I, d- I don't cry on my own podcast, but but your own stories and reflections of, of that providential, uh, as you mentioned, that providential experience uh, is really beautiful. So um, I'm going to. I, I you know what I'm going to go into the closing questions because I had one more question, but it's it's a little bit of a downer, and I don't want to end on a downer. I want I, I love that beautiful <laughs> that beautiful stories that you shared with us, um, but we do have a couple of questions that we ask all of our uh, guests that come on to Think Orphan. Um, so uh, Elizabeth, what have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children and their families with
2: excellence? So, my I'm, I'm a Christian, my faith tradition is as a Catholic, and I would have to say that the work of Pope John Paul II on the family in particular, um, he wrote a document called Familiaris Consortio, which is Latin for the fellowship of the family. It's a beautiful document in general, um, but he had this great sensitivity to the human person. He himself, you know, had survived as a young man, Nazism, and then the communist, you know, occupation of Poland and experienced firsthand many um, ideologies which degraded the human person. And he described adoption this way. He said, to adopt a child is a great work of love. When it is done, much is given, but much is also received. It is a true exchange of gifts. And this notion of gift is central to his thinking um, about God himself, you know, God is, is a Trinity of persons engaged in eternal self gift. Uh, but he thought, you know, John Paul said as humans, we are most fully alive. We are most fully human and we most fully image God when we give of ourselves freely and sacrificially for another. Right. And so for him to place adoption in that framework, I thought it's just, it's always moved me, uh, his description of adoption. So I would, I would say his work.
1: That's beautiful. And, and, we 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 do sometimes get people saying uh, the same answer, and that was a new one. I can say that was a unique <laughs> one, so that was perfect. And right. and what a beautiful description as well. All right, our other question is this: What person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and vulnerable children with excellence?
2: Uh, my dad. I I would say my dad, who adopted me, um, as I said earlier, uh, his his gift of fatherhood. Uh, one quick anecdote: um, Beef when he. Before he married my mother, when he proposed to her, she said, "Um, do you think you can love Beth?" my family calls me Beth, uh, as much as you'll love your own biological children someday?" And he said, "I already do." And you know, so it's that generous gift of fatherhood transcending biology um, that ultimately models you know the fatherhood of God, I think that has has really shaped me the most so. Easy answer there.
1: Easy <laughs> answer and and a good answer. Well, uh, Elizabeth Kirk, thank you so much for coming on to Think Orphan and sharing with us about your work and your experience. I know it's going to encourage a lot of uh, people that that have the same passion to see uh, to see mothers, you know, choose life and to see uh, birth mothers supported, to see adoptive families supported, and to see kids in in family. So, uh, thank you so much for your time with us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Have we back for those hard questions?
1: Well, uh, that was a fantastic episode uh, interview getting to talk with Elizabeth. Uh, you know, I, I think she really kind of opened some doors that we don't open often enough, you know, uh, on this podcast, uh, but but even just kind of generally. I would love to kind of hear, you know, Phil, as you were able to dive into the interview yourself, what are some things that that stood out to you, you know, from my conversation with Elizabeth?
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, we we have delved into the topic of abortion a bit. We delved into the, you know, the birth mother stuff. Um, we have done that with a few different uh, conversations. Um, I say birth mother stuff. I don't want to minimize it. Like the, the hugely important thing about loving and caring for birth mothers. Um, I think back to Adrian Collins and that interview we did with Adrian. If you haven't listened to that interview, you'll hear a lot of the the side of the birth mother and the feelings that she had as a you know it was you know and elizabeth talked about her mom being a college kid who got pregnant and had a crisis pregnancy and and adrian was the same way you know she was a college kid who got pregnant and and her feelings as she as she expressed it it was you know like being tossed in the ocean against the rocks and continually getting hit by the waves crashing in the rocks and she was gasping for and that's what she felt and so I, I put those kind of two together um, with this, with this interview. I was, I was so, I was just enthralled. I was like, I was, I was so bummed. I didn't get to be, I was like wanting to ask questions. I was like, oh, I want to follow up. Um, But, uh, and have that be part of that. But I'm so glad that, that you were able to do that because I probably would have said something, you know, and yeah, you know, I probably would have taken it off course five times and we would have been there for four hours. So, um, but I am, I am hoping that we do take her up on her, on her, You know, a thing at the end saying, hey, yeah, let's let's uh, let's get back and ask the hard stuff. Right. So uh, not that there wasn't hard stuff. There was a lot of hard stuff. There was a lot of there was a lot of issues we talked about in there. Um, And and one of the things that I just I kind of teased it at the beginning in the intro. But just the idea of this narrative. Right. That that we have a very strong narrative against um, life of the unborn. Right. I mean, to have 50 to one choose abortion over adoption because this idea of yeah. if you get pregnant it's a punishment almost it's coercion to have to take a kid to full term you know i mean it's 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 interesting that she's an attorney and in the law we learn the idea that if you and i'm i'm, I'm going to preface this by saying i'm not comparing the two i'm just saying that in the law you have where if you get drunk at a bar and then you go out and kill somebody you're responsible for that death, even if you were completely out of it, right? And so there is this idea of a, of a voluntary act that happens, and and the then the the narrative has completely taken out the fact that we make decisions before the pregnancy, right? There are instances where women don't like, and let's those are separate conversations, right? That are very very difficult. Those are very hard, but that's that is a small percentage of the actual, you know, abortions. And I know this conversation wasn't about abortion, but it is. Right. I mean, it is. It's all part of that. Um, and so the fact that adoption has become the bad option for most of these girls. is just it's just crazy, you know, in when you when you take a step back and you think about the fact that this these are lives that they're carrying. And and, you know, she talks about so many other things, but I, I just want to hear your thoughts on that part of it. Um, and then I have a couple other things that I want to hit on.
1: Yeah, well, I I do think that that it's an interesting juxtaposition. I think often when we're talking about, you know, kids that have gone through trauma, kids that are in need of adoption, we are looking, you know, at like the statistics where, you know, we've heard the 400,000 kids in foster care more times than we can count. And um, and, and that's where a lot of our focus is, And, and rightly so. Like those kids need support on reunification track or on adoption track or whatever. Um, so it's good to focus there. We as people that are that are pro-life um, for us to not have this conversation more often, I think and, and really getting into the nuance and and really kind of getting deep into it. I think what you hear from Elizabeth is is something that is uh, that's just, you know she she gets into all of it and and takes into account what the birth mother's going through takes into account what the adoptive parents are going through take into account of course the child's um, perspective and um i just i i just feel like we need more of these conversations and and i was astonished you know with that statistic that she shared for every one child that gets adopted 50 are aborted um i just think that that's that that's, that that's a what, what would I say? That's almost like an indictment on all of us. That's the word that came to you my know, mind. Yeah. It's like an indictment that one, even though, and, and it is an interesting kind of a paradigm where, you know, left and right people agree, Hey, some adoption is a good thing. Kids need adoption, you know? Um, and yet, you know, the soft stigma that she talked about, you know, um, the, 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 and the perceptions that are often perpetuated where, you know, uh, birth mothers feel as though that isn't, you know, allowing their child to become adopted, uh, is, is just completely, you know, uh, you know, out of, uh, you know, just, just not a, not, just not a viable option for them. Uh, and, and it's just, I, I just feel like these conversations need to happen because, There's just a lot of lack of clarity, you know, in this space, even with some of the misperceptions that, that Elizabeth was highlighting and, uh, and we do, we need to, we need to promote. And, you know, a lot of these women that choose life for their unborn children, they choose to parent them and that's amazing. And that's awesome. And we should encourage that. We should, you know, going back to our conversation with Sarah Winograd, we should wrap around those mothers if they are in a vulnerable environment, you know as they choose life for their child and choose to parent them. So we have to absolutely do that. And for those that just feel like, you know, the best option for my child is to place them for adoption, you know, uh, to also support that and, and to do everything that we can to remove that stigma. Um, because if that's, if that's playing a role here, you know, we have to come against that shame. We have to go come against that. Um, and, and really make sure that, that we're creating those spaces, you know, um, where those kids can enter the world and, and be parented by their birth mother or um, be parented by adoptive parents. So, um, yeah. yeah, I just, I, I there, there was so much in there. Um, but yeah, Absolutely. what else for you, man?
0: And, and I don't want to short shrift any of these things, right? I mean, so we would talk for hours and hours about this if we could, but we can't. I mean, we don't have that uh, ability to do right now because we have the ability, but people would turn it off. Um, but the other thing that I think goes to it is I... I I would be shocked if there's not people who probably already have turned it off because they're saying, you guys are two men. What right do you have to even talk about these issues? You're not even, you know, it's not even there, which is one of the points that Elizabeth made and people have made in the past. But Elizabeth said that fathers are being taken out of the equation. The community is being taken out of the equation. Right now, I would say fathers more than the community because fathers have that. I mean, fathers are obviously an integral part of that creation of the child. Now, I will say, and a lot of women would, 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 you know, a lot of people who have been really hurt by this would say, and I know this because they've said this, um, not necessarily to me, but I've heard it is, well, most of those dads have already bailed, so they don't have any right to do anything. Yes, there are some of those. And and I say, shame on them. That's why we talk about discipleship in an in identity of the, of the father, of the male, you know, to manhood and womanhood to get an identity and formation. That's a huge part of, of the, the, you know, addressing the crisis is that discipleship. But in this issue, you know, fathers have been taken out of the equation and men aren't allowed to speak into it, quote unquote, allowed in the in the narrative, in the kind of in the culture we have. And we need to. We as men need to be voices that are, you know, very are strong, because at the end of the day, uh, when we looked at this, you know, when we had uh, um, Brian Fisher on Fisher, right, with uh, yeah, Brian Fisher with the, the Human Coalition. And he talked about this—the fact that abortion was actually uh, championed at the beginning by all—all all men. I mean, Margaret Sanger too, but the men were the ones leading it. The men on the Supreme Court voted for it, right. and it really was an oppression against women in a lot of ways. And and that's something that you know when we come back to this to go, what is the father's role? We need to have male voices. We need we as males need to be championing life we need to be we need to well first of all men if you're out there and you have um you know if you have impregnated a woman like don't bail like that that should be a like baseline right that should be just a given and unfortunately it's not most of the time i would say the reason it's 50 to 1 is probably because the men have bailed most of the time yeah right so that's something that what does that look like well, it's different in each situation, but I think we need to have the conversation because when we're pushing it to a taboo subject, mm-hmm. it's something that it does. If people say, it's emotional. I'm not even going to talk about it. Then I think we're, we're. I mean, not think, I know we're letting the enemy win because we need to talk about it. We need to discuss it. And I think I'm going to bring the last point that I was going to talk about this idea that she had, not idea that she had, the idea, the thing that they're doing in Louisiana with educating the children, it's got to be part of the curriculum or their, their assemblies or whatever they're doing. They're educating early on about the the, the positives and the, the goodness of adoption. Because as she said, if we wait to educate in the midst of crisis, it's too late. And we know that right. because 2% of the people are choosing adoption. 98% of the people are choosing abortion. So we know that that is something that if we don't educate on that earlier, um, and quite frankly, let's educate more on abstinence. Hmm. You know, we've just accepted that kids are going to be sexually active, <laughs> right? Not yeah. only does that, that affects so much more than just getting pregnant. That affects psyche. That affects mental health. That affects so many things. And we're just ignoring that. So that's something that will prevent all these, if we're right. just if we if we abstain right now, that's a whole different conversation. But that's something that education is huge, and and not and bringing it into the light, not keeping it in the darkness, and that's something that I that I feel strongly strongly about.
1: Yeah, no, and I and I appreciate that, Phil. And and look, that's what we're here to do. We are here to bring things into the light to have conversations. And you know, if anything that we've said or anything that that Elizabeth said. We want to hear from you. Hit us up on social, hit us up. Uh, you can email us. We understand that this is a sensitive topic uh, and we're fully aware of that. And we understand that each person has experiences and thoughts and ways that they kind of came to, you know, whatever their own conclusion may be. But what we want to do is say, you know, what's, what's, what is the truth on this? Both from a scientific standpoint um, and also from a biblical standpoint, and what is god calling us to do in this space so so that's really our heart we understand that that unplanned pregnancies happen we want to be sensitive to that we want to make sure that that those uh, mothers have people around them that can support them and love them and help them make a decision that's in the best interest of the child and in their own best interest as well and i think too often we unfairly bifurcate those those two realities um, I think a lot can coincide that is both in the best interest of the child and the mother. And uh, look, there is more nuance. Uh, there is more con- conser- uh, conservation conversation. Uh, we want to conserve the pregnancy and converse about it. So uh, there is more conversation uh, to to be had. Uh, and, you know, we won't make this a, a two hour uh, episode. Um, but certainly there's other content that people can turn to, to also continue to think about this. So, uh, on that note, Phil, I think you, you even have a recommendation for people that just kind of want to explore this adoption piece a little bit more and, and, and however else it also links with the abortion conversation.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's a movie that came out and, and many of you probably have already watched it or at least heard of it. Um, uh, I was able to watch it with my family about a month ago or so. It's called Life Mark, and I know Rick, our our previous uh, my my previous co host um, before the wonderful Brandon Stiver came along, um, and Lifeline Children's Services was a big uh, sp- uh, supporter and sponsor of the movie. And it really is. It 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 goes into all sides of the of the conversation. It goes into the the birth mother and the the difficulties of that. It goes into the adoptee and the, and the difficult tension there. It goes into the birth father and his struggles and his, his issues. And it goes into the adoptive parents and it, it shows all sides of it um, in a way that, I mean, I was weeping at the end. I'm not going to lie. I mean, you said you don't cry during your own, in your own podcast. That, that that's Forget that, man. I, I cried in this thing. I'm not going to stop crying. I'm a, I'm a weeper um so um i was i was i was crying and my kids were too my wife was my wife doesn't cry easily um in movies um but it was real it was raw it went into the hard stuff it 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 went into the um room with the, the girl who was contemplating abortion at the at the clinic and and deciding you know for life i don't think i'm gonna Spoiler alert, I don't think that's a big spoiler on it. Obviously, she chose life because it was that's the story. But why and what happened and the difficult it's not, it's not, it's not black and white. It's so nuanced, it's so hard. And I think this movie, based on the conversations I've had with people who have struggled through this, um, and I've had lots of those conversations, as you might imagine, um, I think this movie probably did the fact that Lifeline not only got behind it but sponsored it and put their name on it um and was an advisor on it tells me all i need to know about it but should tell you a lot that they they know that because they're they're advocating for all these sides and the different different aspects of it so it was done very very well um and uh you know no perfect and everyone people might struggle with it and for different reasons but i think as well as a, a movie it was based on a true story um and um And so I think that if you say, oh, that's cheesy, I can't believe they'd ever do that. Like, I I was surprised how true to life it was, Right. like the actual story. I went and researched a little bit on that, too. Um, So even some of the cheesy stuff that I was like, oh, that went a little, that actually happened. (laughs) Like (laughs) Yeah. A few things that I was like. uh... Um, And so, but it's not over. Like sometimes the Christian movies, unfortunately, cheese it up uh, too much. And I, I, didn't, I didn't find that in this. I thought it was done very, very well, um, and uh, and as I told you earlier, it does. It brings together the the kind of kings of Christian movies uh, with Kirk Cameron and uh, or Mike Seaver, as I like to refer to them yeah, right. as, with growing pains, and um, and Kendrick, uh, I believe it's Alex Kendrick. But anyway, um, it's fantastic. Strongly recommend it. Uh, Life, Mark. I think you, I know you can find it on PureFlix. I don't know uh, where else you probably sure you can rent it on Amazon and wherever you find your movies, but I definitely check it out. Definitely take the time. If you're listening to this podcast, I have no doubt you will really uh, get a lot out of this movie. And for those people who you might know, like maybe in your life group or your community group or family, whatever, that may not really understand some of the nuances of what you're doing, that would be a really good movie to watch with them and, and discuss because it it does hit on a lot of the stuff that that we deal with on this on this uh on this podcast.
1: Well, that's good man. I'm going to have to check it out. I, I I did see something about it. So, now that you're bringing it up, definitely, definitely have to go and rent it.
0: I would definitely check it out. The nice thing is you can watch it with the whole family. There's it's yeah. it's not something you have to just watch with your wife. I I strongly recommend watching it with your whole family. So, anyway, folks, thanks again for being a part of this conversation. Thanks for being part of um, just really making a difference, uh, in the lives of, of orphan, vulnerable children, families. Um, I do pray that, that, you know, you get involved in, in somehow in wrapping around birth mothers, wrapping around adoptive families, wrapping around, uh, children that are, they're that caught in the system. You know, we talked about, you know, as you talked about the infant adoption and you talk about the difference of, you know, promote you know really trying to, to to uh encourage people to think about older adoption but all of its soness all of its part of the puzzle are all, all of these are pieces that we need to work together on so as always we hope and pray that you will take all that you're learning on the show and you'll use it to help you help those around you to love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day thanks a lot have a great couple weeks